This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. So imagine uh, a landscape where civil unrest, racial, racial tensions, and educational disparities meet a medium termed the vast wasteland. And they, they come together to create a revolution that actually changed America. And the cast of characters who made this happen were passionate, geniuses, um, and and lucky that they were still in the environment that's a little bit hard to imagine now that was the great society under Lyndon Johnson, which becomes uh, important. David Camp tells uh, the story in a way that is, I, I, I was, I was um, charmed, I, I learned a ton, and the new book, as Erica said, is called uh, Sunny Days, the Children's Television Revolution that Changed America. And David's a best-selling author. He's a contributing writer of Vanity Fair. He's written for the Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, uh, The New York Times. So David, on behalf of R.J. Julius in Madison, Wesley and R.J. Julius in Middletown, and our podcast, Just the Right Book, welcome. I'm thrilled to be at all of the R.J. Julia's, <laughs> Roxanne. Thanks. See, that is the upside of Zoom and not being able to do in-person events is that you could be on all these different mediums at the same time. So, Indeed, uh, yeah. Welcome, David. So one of the things that was an interesting reminder to me is before this revolution started, and we're talking about the late 60s. What was the environment? Like, how many hours was TV even on? And what did children's programming even look like? Well, TV wasn't on 24-7 the way it is now. And you had the, the, test, the test pattern that, that went on for, you know, in first thing in the morning and the national anthem playing out the programming at night. But all that said, it was a lot like how we're having this debate now about do our kids on screens too much because TV in the 50s and, and up to this point in the late 60s that you mentioned was a new thing and kids being addicted to screens was a thing then just as it is now except the screens were TV screens. The average kid in the early 60s was watching six hours of TV a day but it was mostly like cartoons or game shows, or just kind of like generalized junk programming. There wasn't a lot of quality programming. The one exception might have been Captain Kangaroo, Bob Keeshan, who came mm -hmm. on CBS in the, in the mid-50s, and he was kind of the only like decent children's programming out there, truly. And so the people who were coming together, you know, the name that we often hear the most is Joan Gantz Cooney. Um, who was not the only person who made this happen, but let's start with her. How did, how did she come to be part of the uh, children's television uh, workshop? 
and well, and and, yeah, and create on. something like Sesame Street. Well, Joan Ganz Cooney, what's interesting about her is she never intended to go into children's television. In fact, she never even had children. She she later remarried and had stepchildren, but she got into TV in the 50s after she graduated from the University of Arizona for a weird reason to get into TV. Like most people, when you go into the TV business, why do you do it? Either you're creative or you're like really hungry to be a star or you're really hungry to sort of have power over the media. She actually thought that TV, this new medium would be a useful medium for addressing society's ills. And her biggest issue was poverty. She wanted to see, like, so she, she got a job in the 60s, the early 60s, working for WNET, Channel 13, which is New York's public TV station. And she was making documentaries, mostly about anti-poverty efforts, like Head Start-like programs, but things about poor black kids in Harlem and programs that, that might help them. But she was not necessarily interested in creating children's programming. She meets this guy through her cousin, Julian Gans. So Julian has a friend named Lloyd Morissette, who's working at the Carnegie Corporation, the philanthropic organization. But Lloyd Morissette is also a psychologist. And another thing that's happening in the 60s is that child psychology is legit all of a sudden. It's not quackery. And yeah. this whole idea of early childhood development is important. So they have this dinner party at Joan Gans Cooney's apartment and Tim Cooney, her husband, in winter 66, where Lloyd Morissette and Joan Gans Cooney get into this deep discussion about could TV be used to help small children learn? And that was sort of the lightning bolt moment. And it took three and a half years from that dinner party to November 10th, 1969. But that's, those two started Sesame Street at that dinner party. And David, the other thing that I would have had, or I think most of us would have never had any idea about is Explain to everyone the kind of research that went into the, the, the format and the programming that was Sesame Street. Yeah, well, when I talk about three and a half years of development, it wasn't, I mean, one thing that's really important about why Sesame Street worked is that a ton of forethought went into it, not just child psychologists, and there were a battalion of them working with the show, but there were also creatives and there were um, people testing um, to see how kids responded to screen stimulus. Uh, so there were even like tests, like there were, there were kind of focus groups of four-year-olds to see what would work and what wouldn't work. And I, I wanna mention Fred Rogers here too, Roxanne, because a lot of people think that Fred Rogers, who kind of happened concurrently with Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood went national just one year before in 68, Everyone thinks that Fred Rogers was just this preternaturally strange, but really benign and sweet, slow talking man who was just winging it. But even he rooted everything he did in child psychology. Every episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was uh, done in the, with the consultation of a woman named Dr. Margaret McFarland, who was a pediatric psychologist at the University of Pittsburgh. So when Fred Rogers entered that living room set singing It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, and he walked screen left to screen right. The reason he did that was to train a child's eye to read left to right, as if you do in the English language, that is how you learn to read, left to right. So Sesame Street and Fred Rogers both had a ton of child psychology and research and, and just, just very careful calibration to make sure that this wasn't too over the top, wasn't too weird, wasn't too gentle, wasn't too boring. 
And I think that's why these shows succeeded in the long run. And, and you know, we'll talk about the other shows, but let's, sticking to Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street, so they had, what, what was each of their purposes? What did, what did Sesame Street set out to accomplish? And what did Mr. Rogers set out to accomplish? Because that, that ends up being a thread that I think brings us to the present day. Yes, I mean, I think Sesame Street was fundamentally trying to improve the lot of the least disadvantaged. It, was, it came out of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society when it was a really progressive era. You had the Democratic Party controlling the presidency, the Senate, and, and, and the House of Representatives. And so suddenly big government was a factor and you, you, you had um, the Education Act passed and the Civil Rights passed. And those two things kind of coalesced into this policy of if we uplift the least fortunate among us, uh, we uplift all of society. Lloyd Morris had actually used the term with me that um, the only wealth he ever cared about was human wealth, meaning the, the wealth of children who weren't getting the opportunity mm. to learn and if only they had the chance. And so Sesame Street, in its original conception, its primary audience was actually poor black kids in the inner city. Joan Gans Cooney was that explicit. Like a four-year-old poor black kid in a, in a, in a, in a city in America I mean, she obviously wanted other kids to watch and the show was so good that, you know, inevitably that's what happened is that all kids watched, but she was trying to implement the policies of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society through TV to give kids, and especially the poor kids, a leg up so that when they entered kindergarten, they weren't already lagging behind, you know, the suburban kids who had more advantages to, uh, to, their, to their early lives. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was not, uh, I mean, Sesame Street had explicit goals of teaching letters and numbers and learning about environments, meaning like learning about what is a city, what is a rural environment, what is a family relationship, what's a mom, what's a dad. Fred Rogers was much more behavioral. Um, again, coming out of child psychology, Fred Rogers just wanted to tell you that it's okay for you to have an emotional life. You don't need to sh like keep it inside you. If you feel angry, you should make clear that you're angry and express to your parents that you're angry. And um, if you have uh, hangups about, about bedwetting or so, and so forth, one thing Fred Rogers did was he very languidly and slowly held a hose over a fish tank for something like three minutes, which in TV time, three minutes is an eternity to watch a TV show. And he did it to filled up a tank with water just because psychologically he was trained by Margaret McFarlane to think that if, if kids see this, if they see a tank can actually hold water, that will give them some sort of psychological reassurance that they can control their fluids too. So again, like very different rhythms to these shows, very different purposes, but they kind of fit together in a nice way. It's, now let's go to that purpose, because one of the things that I've um, spent a lot of time studying, learning, and understanding is the achievement gap of kids. I live in Connecticut, particularly in Connecticut. So in thinking about what Sesame Street was successful at, um, it would maybe be too cynical on my part to say that the achievement gap in many parts of the country from the day that Sesame Street launched to now is no better and maybe worse. 
So what was it about their, that singular purpose? We'll go to their other benefits because I don't want, mm. I don't mean to throw Sesame Street under the bus to use a bad metaphor, but what, what is the thinking about why Sesame Street wasn't able to achieve what was considered so critical? And that right. is preparing them for school. Well, it did succeed in preparing kids for school. I think that's sort of the next question I have to answer is that's where it did succeed. Where it didn't succeed is in closing this achievement gap. And that was that phrase was a big part of the rhetoric of Joan Gans Cooney's launch of Sesame Street um, when it was like publicly announced in 68 and when it finally aired in 69 and those early seasons. And what it meant was that, you know, those kids who are growing up in poverty or in, in uh, resource deprived uh, circumstances would no longer fall behind, uh, you know, kids living in the suburbs, kids with greater advantages. Um, that gap never really closed. They, and, and Joan Gans Cooney later came to regret that that achievement gap phrase was used so freely during mm. the launch of Sesame Street. But Lloyd Morissette said to me, it doesn't entirely ring true that, oh, therefore Sesame Street didn't accomplish anything because he, he said any generally distributed social good is going to affect people differently. He said, like social right. security, rich people get social security too. And it really doesn't make a difference in their lives, but to people who need social security checks, it does make a difference. So I don't think there's any question that Sesame street made a huge difference and it didn't close that gap. That gap still very much exists but it did do a job of better preparing kids and especially poor black kids and other kids of color as, as time went on um, to better prepare them for school. And I just want to mention a story that Naomi Foner, who was um, a young assistant on Sesame Street and later became one of the founding producers of the electric company, uh, the, the older kid program from the children's television workshop told me Naomi Foner, when she was young was working on Sesame Street in that developmental phase, 68, before the show was on the air, they were just doing kind of test episodes and partial episodes. And one thing they did was they had this focus group of four-year-olds, um, black kids, and they put out some dolls, white dolls and black dolls, and they just said, um, which would you rather play with? And the black kids all chose the white dolls because they had been conditioned by, by society to think that was the ideal of beauty. That might be the idea of a better life than the lives that they were living. But after one year of Sesame Street, they did the same test. And because this, this show celebrated multiculturalism and had a radically multicultural cast, which is something we can discuss. Um, but after just one year, the kids were choosing the black dolls to play with. So that is such a simple measure of, um, mm -hmm. a, of a, a success that Sesame Street achieved. And, you know, talking about getting the kids ready for school, you, you had some statistics in the book that uh, in 1970, 20% of the kids in the country were in a nursery school. But the shocking statistic was what percent of school districts had kindergartens? Right. 50%. So even 50% of all school kids weren't even at age five attending school. It was kind of, and, and as, as you just said, only 20% were in nursery school. So as late as 1970, it was still this ad hoc approach to early child care. And if you think in terms of what all the psychologists were saying about child development, how important it was at that age, I mean, 
parents were doing a great job. And let's face it, it was moms doing a great job and grandmothers because there were fewer women in the workplace percentage wise in 1970 than there are now. But it was this burden, you know, it wasn't fair to the moms and grandmoms and they, there, there needed to be a better way. And, and so it is astounding to realize what a gap Sesame Street filled for everyone in terms of, in terms of early childhood development. And David, what's known about who the audience for Sesame Street was? Well, in the early days, the reality of it was who watches PBS? What's the stereotype of a PBS viewer? You know, a, a kind of educated, affluent white person. And that was true back then too. Maybe not affluent, but middle class. And so there had to be serious outreach, Roxanne, to make people aware of Sesame Street. Mm. And they actually had this thing called the Department of Utilization, which was basically a, a community services outreach. That sounds Russian. Wing, <laughs> Department of Utilization. But what all utilization meant was kind of, in, in their terms, was basically getting the word out and getting people to watch the show. And the woman who ran that department was a black woman named Evelyn Payne Davis, who worked for the New York City Urban League. And she leveraged all of her connections you know, in the Urban League and as a, as a person who was in the Black community in New York, to get the word out, um, they literally got trucks from Con Ed to be literal promotional vehicles, meaning Con Ed lent some of its trucks, the utility Con Ed, if you're not from the New York City area, to, which, which carried around TV sets that had uh, Sesame Street playing on them. And they established all sorts of um, viewing centers, because bear in mind, especially if you were poor, you didn't necessarily have a TV set. So in some cities, they used churches. In some cities, they used the common rooms in housing projects. In Washington, D.C.'s Ward 8, another poor black neighborhood, um, they actually used space in a 7-Eleven where they just had Sesame Street viewing centers. And it was a remarkably ambitious program. I say in the book, it's almost like they were running their own government branch out of the Children's Television Workshop, which is basically um, a branch devoted to educating children by, by, by creating awareness and giving children and their, and their caregivers a space to actually watch the show. And so the other, I mean, Sesame Street, the, the other element of it, which I've been thinking about now with remote learning is, I forget whose quote it is you have in the book that, um, uh, oh, I think it's from, I think it was um, Joan Gantz Cooney who talked about that teachers were being forced to be entertainers, but in fact, what she was hoping to do is make entertainers teachers. Well, it, it was it was, was Joan it who that quote? It was John Stone's quote. John Stone oh, was John Stone. Was, he was a producer on Sesame Street, the original showrunner. He's the guy who kind of made Sesame Street Sesame Street, meaning it was his idea to have that urban set with the stoop at its center. And it was his idea to sort of, to, he, was, he knew Jim Henson to, to draft in Jim Henson and get all the Muppets involved and everything. But he was the one who said that Joan's masterstroke was that all previous attempts, sincere attempts at educational TV for young children, they basically tried to turn teachers into entertainers and it just inherently didn't work. Whereas entertainers could be trained to be teachers or could work with uh, educational consultants and professors and actual school teachers to learn how to channel curriculum via entertainment. And it worked. And the other brilliant thing that Joan Gans Cooney did was she fell in love with the show Laugh-In. And if you're you know, under 45 and watching this event, 
uh, laughing. You don't, you don't know, know what it is. <laughs> you don't know what it is. So it, it was this late 60s uh, comic sketch show that had this rat-a-tat-tat-tat-tat amphetamine fast pace. And Joan Gans Cooney said, I want that pace for the show. So I want to jump from like human beings on the set to a Muppet short, to an animated segment, to um, a, a pre-film segment of Life on a Farm, to, to, to something else. And a lot of the uh, education consultants scoffed at this. They thought, this is, this is terrible. This is going to ruin kids' minds and turn their brains to oatmeal. But it worked because what, what she innately understood somehow was that kids coming along in the late 60s and early 70s were just inherently more TV literate than their forebears. I was one of the first kids to watch Sesame Street. I was three years old in 1969. And my mom, who was a research scientist, read some article that said PBS to present new educational experimental program. She plunked me down in front of that TV set. And more than my older siblings, I was TV literate. I could pick up the pace. And I think that's kind of like it connected with us in some, some way that it couldn't have connected with a previous generation. We were ready for it in some weird way. And, and yet, David, wasn't Fred Rogers' uh, concern or criticism about Sesame Street was the pace? Obviously, Mr. Rogers was about as languid as you could get. Yeah. And I think to this day, there's too much of an insistence, like a binary insistence that you have to like one show or the other more. And I actually think they were wonderfully complementary programs because Sesame Street was the right show to engage people who were coming up in the early 70s and they were being bombarded with rock music and, and way more just sort of entertainment stimulus. Um, it, was, it was also the pop art era and it was the Peter Max era. You had rainbows exploding out of everything, you know? And, and, and so Sesame Street was, was shrewd in, in appealing to, you know, people like me at that age. But Mr. Rogers was also shrewd in sort of bringing us down from that high in a mm. really gentle way. And I think the shows kind of serve different purposes. And I think they're really complementary. But to get to your point about Fred Rogers, he was initially put off by Sesame Street because he did think the pace was too fast. And he thought that some of the shtick was too slapstick and violent. Like in the early days, Jim Henson didn't just do the Muppets. He did these um, stop motion animation things and he did uh, animations. And, and um, one thing he did was a, a series of counting shorts where it was like rock music and Grace Slick from Jefferson Airplane singing about the number two or the number three. And they would conclude with this uh, live action thing of a baker. And if the number was two, for example, he would sing two chocolate cream pies. And he would have the two pies on a tray. And he would, uh, in his chef's whites, tumble head over heels down this flight of stairs. And to some kids, that was hilarious. But Fred Rogers, commented to the press and said, I don't think that's funny. I don't think kids should be seeing that because a lot of young viewers have only recently learned how to walk. And something like that might upset them. It might be traumatic to them. And a part of me really wants to say, oh, Fred, you square, you corny man, how wrong you were. But then I was doing a ton of research at the University of Maryland where they have the Children's Television Workshops archives. And you can see that in the early 70s, Roxanne, they got tons of letters from parents saying, my child is really upset by that tumbling baker, that baker falling down the stairs. And they discontinued those, those shorts. Mm. So essentially, Fred Rogers was correct. And th that there's two lessons in that. One is that Fred Rogers 
really knew what he was doing. And the other was that Sesame Street was uncommonly willing to admit mistakes. Joan Ganscuni always built it as an experiment, and they were unafraid to admit when they were wrong and move on. So that raises four questions in my in my four. brain as I was listening to you. I'm going to try to dull them out. Okay. Obviously, Jim Henson's Muppets are an iconic element of Sesame Street. Yet Jim Henson wasn't some like out of work puppeteer hanging around trying to find a job. So it was quite a coup that they got him. So share with everyone what he was doing at that point, what shape was he in, and what was it that ultimately enticed him to go to Sesame Street? Well, Jim Henson was already a huge success. He was a millionaire by the time he turned 30, which wasn't that long before Sesame Street started. And he was, again, went to the University of Maryland and already, while an undergrad, had a TV show on local Baltimore, D.C. Uh, TV called Sam and Friends, a five-minute show which had a few different puppets, one of which was the early version of Kermit who wasn't even necessarily a frog. And then he also made a ton, ton of money doing advertisements uh, for Wilkins Coffee, which is a local DC area coffee company. And the success of the Wilkins campaign had him doing national campaigns for uh, La Choy Chinese food and lots of other brands, Frito-Lay. So this man was rich, but he'd worked with John Stone, the aforementioned John Stone, the original showrunner, uh, on a previous project. So when John Stone brought him in, Jim Henson actually warmed to this idea because he had young kids at that point. He had four kids, and he would eventually have five kids. And the fourth of his five kids, John Paul Henson, actually had some learning disabilities. And so Jim and his wife, Jane, at that particular moment when Joan Gans Cooney and John Stone invited him along, saw that this could be huge, this experiment in preschool children's programming. And he actually foreswore his lucrative advertising career to sort of pretty much devote all of his energies in those first few years to Sesame Street. You know, David, we can't go into all the different people, but I was fascinated by the convergence of talent that came together on the electric company, on Sesame Street, you know, Marlo Thomas's show. It seemed like such a heady time. Do you, do you think that um, th that was a unique convergence of, you've done a lot of reporting on people in uh, TV and, and movies. Do you think that there was something unique about that or does that go on more than we really realize about this kind of, I mean, it was pretty stunning. It was stunning and it was, it was unique. I mean, we still, celebrities, it's still a rite of passage. You know you've made it as a great American when Sesame Street invites you to go on. But back then, people were willing to go on Sesame Street before it had even aired. And I, to go back to the idea of uh, making uh, African-American kids feel comfortable watching this show, people who signed on to appear on the show before it even had a public reputation were Lena Horne, Harry Belafonte, uh, Jackie Robinson. They all came on, and James Earl Jones, they did alphabet recitals or singing the alphabet or, or doing counting songs. And Rita Moreno was on The Electric Company, uh, and, and I spoke to her. And remember, she'd already won an Oscar for playing Anita in West Side Story. And the movie she'd just done right before joining Sesame Street was Mike Nichols's Carnal Knowledge. 
<laughs> in which she played, yes, a prostitute. So I mean, she she was she was like really doing some real heavy acting out there. Um, and one funny comment she said to me, she said, "It really was public TV and public service, in every sense of the word public, including the salary, meaning you know it it paid terribly, but." They all did it because it felt like the right thing to do. And to get back to your question of was it a unique time? Yeah, it was a unique time because Lyndon Johnson's Great Society was an outgrowth of JFK's New Frontier, which was that that ethos of we're going to found the Peace Corps and ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. There's a real sense of service and of putting your ideals ahead of uh, careerism and, and big salaries, and as Rita Moreno articulated, and I think that applied to uh, everyone who worked on Sesame Street. Well, and to that point, um, you talk about in the book that they uh, spent $8 million to produce the first 130 episodes. $4 million came from the government. Right, which is astonishing uh, that, that the Department of Education and a few other governmental agencies put up half of the budget for um, the first few years of Sesame Street's existence. So in other words, the federal government government was in the TV production business. That never happens anymore. There's occasional trickles of money, but they were like 50% owners of this show. And like a, a, a few days before Sesame Street aired for the first time, Nixon's Secretary of Education, so this carried beyond Johnson's administration into Nixon's, it was still progressive enough that James Allen, who is Nixon's Secretary of Education, appears on TV to say to parents, be sure, come November 10th, to tune in at Sesame Street time on your local TV station. Wow. It's the equivalent, and this is on NBC. He actually went on a, a commercial network to make this announcement. It's, it's as if a cabinet section, uh, secretary now went on uh, Seth, Seth uh, Myers or Jimmy Fallon and said, my new show is dropping on Tuesday, check it out. It was like, it was so weird that, but amazing and good that the federal government was this actively involved. David, so let's go back to uh, the comment about multiculturalism because I, I missed this whole time of TV. I was, I was already married and I didn't have a kid yet. So I wasn't watching in those early years. And my, my um, TV shows that I knew were like Pinky Lee and Howdy Doody and Captain <laughs> right. Kangaroo, which I, I didn't realize how badly I was being ruined by those shows till I read your book, but <laughs> I've, I've moved past that. But the you, element you, I'm worried that, about you, Roxanne. <laughs> too much Howdy Doody. That's, that's obviously my problem. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll, like, we'll, we'll look into Pinky that Lee. Yeah. I loved Pinky Lee, but I realized after reading your book that he was like a really bad guy. No, he wasn't necessarily a bad guy. It's just that that, that boomer era television was more what I would call assaultive. It was more like, we're entertainers and we're coming at you, kiddies. <laughs> like vaudeville. It was sort of vaudevillian and, and Pinky Lee indeed had actually worked in vaudeville. And it was just coming from a more patronizing place. And I think it was more divisive, meaning some kids loved it, but some kids were terrified of it. And that's where Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers had greater sway. They really, but you wanted to get into the multicultural question. Yeah, so, but, but even from afar, to me, one of the important contributions that Sesame Street and Electric Company made was making the multicultural aspect of 
people and characters and subjects very run-of-the-mill. Like, of course, there were, of course, there were characters of all different colors and stripes. And, but yet, Sesame Street, in the early years, when, uh, who was the person, Roosevelt Franklin? Oh, the Muppet, Roosevelt Franklin? Roosevelt Franklin, the Muppet, that there there was a debate about whether a black character should in fact sound educated and white, or should they sound educated, but in the vernacular of what might be considered street language. So how did Sesame Street deal with that? How did that move through how Sesame Street represented multiculturalism? Well, first of all, that it even represented multiculturalism, not just with those uh, guest stars. Was so new. What was so new. In fact, it was so new. In the 60s, I think through the early 70s, Jet Magazine, the Black Weekly that you'd buy at supermarkets, its back page had like, who's black on TV this week? Like... um, Star Trek, CBS, Michelle Nichols, you know, or, or Sammy Davis Jr. will be on Merv Griffin. There were so few black people appearing regularly on TV that Jet Magazine made a thing of it on their back page saying, here's who's wow. black. Um, and then Sesame Street premieres with uh, Loretta Long as Susan and, and Matt Robinson as Gordon in the cast, the original cast. And that's a black couple who are on five days a week. So that alone was radical. And it was also an integrated cast. It was black and white people. It's hard to later- imagine. Yeah. It's hard to imagine that that was radical that recently. Right. And, and, and then it, and it still didn't include uh, Latino people. And then by season three, there were Latino characters, Luis and Maria. But to get back to Roosevelt Franklin, Matt Robinson didn't just play Gordon. He was also a writer and producer on the show. And he raised the point that there should be a Muppet character who's Black, uh, again, to make kids, uh, uh, like a small kid Muppet character is Black, to make Black kids watching at home, like in Philadelphia, where he's, he was from, make them feel like, oh, there's someone I can identify with. And Jim Henson said, well, I mean, the Muppets really have no color, except the color of the felt they're made out of, you know, like Ernie's orange and Bert's yellow and Grover's blue. But, but Matt Robinson said, that's not what I mean. Like, but, like uh, the default mannerisms of a Muppet character are basically from a white guy because the people operating the Muppets are white guys. Mm-hmm. And so, and again, to Joan Gans Clooney's eternal credit, she was a great listener. And she let Matt Robinson create this character named Roosevelt Franklin, who was this little guy with purple face and a shock of black hair. And he, and he had the mannerisms and speech affect of a, of a, a black kid, uh, um, you know, from the city, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, was kind of street vernacular. And, and kind of a jivey pattern, amazing songs and, and, and just amazing comic bits. And the characters, the, the Muppets were still in, that surrounded them were still operated by Jim Henson's crew, but they were voiced atypically by Robinson, by Loretta Long, and later on by uh, Sonia Manzano, who played Maria, and Norlin Calloway, who, who played David. They also voiced these Muppets. So you had Black and Latino characters voicing these Muppets. The controversy was actually within the black executive ranks of the children's television workshop. Matt Robinson was all for this character. And by the way, I as a kid watching at home was all for this character. Roosevelt Franklin remains to this day my favorite Muppet ever. I loved him. He electrified the screen when he came on. And I think that was true for all kids who watched him. But I learned from doing research for this book that within the ranks of Sesame Street, 
Evelyn Payne Davis, who ran the Department of Utilization and a producer named Luttrell Horn and a consultant who was a teacher named Jane O'Connor, all African-American, they were saying, hang on to Joan against Cooney. This is the image we're trying to get away from, this kind of street, jivey, right on, what up, kind of, you know, that kind of talk. We are trying to present a more aspirational model of, of what, what a Black American is. And so there was this roiling internal debate that went on for a while because Joan Gans Cooney also heard critiques from people in the Black community that Sesame Street's Black people were more Westchester than Watts. And so she was getting it from both sides, but ultimately, alas, she did side with what I'll call the bourgeois contingent who didn't want Roosevelt on the show. So sadly, Roosevelt was, was phased out of the show in the mid 70s, um, but his legacy does live on because people I interviewed for the book um, have told me like April Rain, who the activist who started the Oscars So White hashtag mm -hmm. and Questlove, the drummer for The Roots, who also incidentally wrote the forward to Sunny Days, uh, they both told me that Roosevelt had exactly the intended effect that Matt Robinson wanted. They were black kids, preschoolers watching at home. They saw that character on the screen. And they said, that's me. I recognize me. I feel validated. And they said that was the first time they ever felt seen on television. So mission accomplished for Matt Robinson. Yeah. Oh, you know, the other reaction I had when I was reading this that you realize how ridiculous it is that you think you have a black character and a black character should represent all black people as if, right, as if black people are one a unit. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, so what I'm going to do is we've got a couple of questions. I'm going to take those and then uh, we'll wrap up with the last uh, question I have for you. So this is a question from Deborah. It's amazing how much research, forethought, and planning went into Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Do you think that any of the children's TV programs today engage in the same level of research, including the current iteration of Sesame Street? Um, I would say that the current iteration of Sesame Street still does that. They, they, they still put that level of forethought and research into the show and they're addressing things. You've, you've probably seen these things crop up in the news that like the South, because there's international editions of Sesame Street all over the world, like the South African edition of Sesame Street had an HIV positive Muppet. And the American version of Sesame Street has an autistic Muppet character. So they're still addressing these things. Like they're trying to help the most uh, people who are marginalized or feel kids who feel like they're different or, or their circumstances are different. I don't think there's another kids show out there that has a comparable uh, level of, of, of forethought and preparation. Mm -hmm. There are good kids shows out there, but not on the level of these uh, late 60s, early 70s shows. And one of the other questions related to uh, that you have to bring up about the international, what is it about Sesame Street that's made it so adaptive to so many countries. And did that happen with Mr. Rogers? Did that, did that not translate as well or did it? I think Mr. Rogers didn't translate beyond, you know, uh, the, the English speaking world because he was so uniquely a kind of plain spoken American guy. He was a Presbyterian minister and there was something uniquely American in the way he, he reached kids, American kids. Sesame Street, its format, because it was, it's so, bubbly and broadly entertaining in that laughing way. The Muppets 
just the color they add, the idea of a multiracial cast, and the music is really important. We haven't discussed that much, but yeah. awesome songs. Joe Raposo uh, was the musical director and composer, the original musical director of Sesame Street. Prolific, brilliant, and he wrote all these amazing songs, and that's really translatable. Music is probably the most translatable thing there is. Um, in fact, it doesn't need translation often. So I think that's why Sesame Street could be sort of replicated around the world. You know, David, it's funny that you bring that up because one of the things I did in preparing for the interview after I was reading the book, I thought, I want to go back, you know, since I never watched these shows. And I was, I, I, I'm going to like download some of those songs. Oh, yeah, they're awesome. <laughs> I mean, uh, I won't sing them for you, but like, like, you know, three of these things belong together. One of these things just isn't the same. And I've got two <laughs> eyes, one, two. And then Roosevelt Franklin's songs, The Skin I'm In. They, yeah. he, the, the very first Sesame Street album uh, was an album of Roosevelt Franklin songs that Matt Robinson wrote. And they're so pertinent right now to the yeah. Black Lives Matter movement. Those were some of the ones I listened to. Yeah, they're, they're, and they're really good songs. And Raposo wrote the music, but they're like good songs. And they're kind of bluesy. Yeah, they're blues, R&B, and soul. They fit in with 1971 when the album came out. They sound like Al Green and Stax Records and High Records and all those labels. You're talking about my songs there. <laughs> oh, good. Well, then, then everyone, check out Roosevelt Franklin's album. It's streaming. You can, you can find it on iTunes and wherever, Spotify. Uh, so, David, another... Uh, I have two more questions, and then uh, we'll close with a question. Uh, William asks, what... What did kill the golden age of children's television? William asks a good question. Uh, one, of the, one of the people I spoke to for this book was Letty Cotton Pogrebin, who is one of the great second wave or third, second wave feminists with Gloria Steinem and, and uh, Marlo Thomas. She helped create Free to Be You and Me, which is a very successful uh, book, record, and TV show and in the TV early 70s. Show. Yeah, and it, by 74, it became a TV show. But, I asked Letty a question like William just asked, and she said, in a word, Reagan. And um, that's, that's I mean, not, it's not entirely true, but basically what happened was by the late 70s and early 70s, the country took a turn, the political wind shifted. It became a more conservative time and a more deregulatory time. And Ronald Reagan's, he becomes president in 81. His first commissioner of the FCC is a guy named Mark Fowler, who is an avid deregulator, and he famously said that the TV is nothing more than a toaster with pictures, meaning just another consumer household appliance with no moral imperative attached to it. Therefore, he was liberating the FCC and TV stations from having any sort of moral imperative or mandate to have educational programming on. Um, so commercial stations that had actually run some pretty good children's content. Like locally in New York, there's a great show called The Magic Garden that I write about in the book. Um, Carol and Paula, who are the stars and creators of The Magic Garden, said that was the death knell. As soon as uh, Mark Fowler said, you know, deregulate, no moral imperative, that was it. So I think that was the main thing that brought it to an end. The other thing is just maybe that level of inspiration, that level of ferment, maybe wasn't sustainable for it. Like it couldn't be that great for that long. But that, I think those are the answers. And do, does that state of deregulation exist to this day? I think it's been redressed to some degree because there was pushback. There were, there were, um, there, there were 
what happened in the 80s and 90s is there were shows that were just basically commercials for toys like My Little Pony and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So there have been some correctives and over time we've seen some good shows come along, you know, in like the turn of the century, this century, you had Dora the Explorer and Blue's Clues and Bear in the Big Blue House. And now there's Peppa Pig. You know, there, there are shows out there that are good. They don't, they're not the level of inventiveness and inspiration of original Sesame Street. But yeah, it, it has been corrected. And I'm confident that we may be getting into a phase where, given all the social unrest that's happening, that there will be collective recognition that we need more Sesame Street lot like, you know, ambitious children's programming. Yeah, you know, the other thing I wonder about as I was reading this with all the remote learning going on and the mm. prospect that remote learning will remain an element of how kids learn, it made me wonder if there are educators out there now as they think about improving the quality of remote learning would go back to the kind of work that was done for Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers to think about how to teach remotely because really what they're doing is watching TV. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how, I mean, and, and I honestly wish it wasn't so resonant. It's amazing how the book has been so resonant with current events in terms of like learning through screens or um, empowering uh, young black kids to feel, to make them feel validated. I, I wish all of these things, horrible things hadn't happened to make this book resonant, but but it is, and that that is one of the things that's been resonant. Is I've been asked a lot. We're we're back to wor uh, worrying. Can screens teach? And the the answer I give is that of course screens can teach, but you've got to remember that Sesame Street had three years of rigorous preparation, and I really feel for teachers and parents of young kids now who abruptly in the month of March had to muddle through this improvised solution of Zoom kindergarten and Zoom elementary school. Yeah. And then with this coming college school year, my son's in college and he's got this thing where you can just stay home and take your entire school year online. Um, and the thing is right now it's all being done on the fly. I'm sure it'll get better as time goes on. But yeah, that is a challenge. If, this is, if, if we've got to be prepared, I hope there's not another pandemic, but if we, we know we've got to be prepared for one. So we know we have a new semi-normal where we've always got to be prepared for remote learning. So why not apply the level of care and thoughtfulness and also entertainment savvy. And entertainment. That yeah, that went into Sesame Street, which had great entertainment pros involved in it, like Jim Henson, like all these people who are uh, Captain Kangaroo alumni and people who had written for uh, commercial TV. Let's bring all of this together to create something as good as Sesame Street, but that isn't Sesame Street, that's something new. And let's do that at the, at the, at the higher, the electric company level and at the teenage level. I mean, I think this is a good opportunity to really rethink all that. Because as I, you know, we talked about that quote about when, when TV was trying to make educators entertainers instead of making entertainers educators about trying to find that intersection now right and i'd say we can never replace uh like teacher. one to one like in in person learning right but we can help we can help teachers I and mean, it shouldn't be imperative that teachers be entertainers it should be imperative that, they, that they're not boring damn it but, yeah. <laughs> but they but but they should they shouldn't be expected to be like i'm on street and therefore like i'm i am jim henson uh but what they can do is have good programming as a complement and actually the electric company of all programs was 
the most successfully incorporated TV show into public school curricula across the country. And it was used successfully in the 70s in that way, where teachers would actually say, and now let's go to the electric company, that the kids would actually have a, a TV set in the classroom, and they'd, they'd learn some of their lessons from the TV. Yeah, so, you know, so all of that made me hopeful about the adaptive um, use of, of the kind of research that was done by these TV shows. But let's close with this. We didn't get to talk about why you decided to write this book, but what I rather close with is, so you named the book Sunny Days. Now, obviously, Sunny Days was the song that was Sesame, the Sesame Street. Sesame Street theme, right. Uh, but was there another reason you picked that title? Well, I'd say it's, it's a two-dimensional thing. Is there, there's two things I want people to take from this book. And one is the first thing you alluded to. Yeah, it's obviously from sunny days, sweeping the clouds away. And I want people to enjoy kind of that, that welcome, uh, warm bath of, of, of childhood nostalgia, the comfort that you can take in how good those programs were and how right they got it. Um, or if you're a parent with young kids, you know, it, that, that theme song still brings a level, ah, the sweet place where, where kids can spend their time. The other thing, though, is that even when I conceived this book in 2015, which, which sounds like paradise right about now, but, um, you know, even then, in a very different world than we're living in now, I sense a certain brokenness to society that I, I, I wanted to write about a time when Americans of noble intent banded together for the common good and succeeded at doing something really crazily ambitious. And so there was something really sunny about them pushing against all the pessimism mm -hmm. of the late 60s and, and those early were 70s. dark times. MLK assassinated, RFK assassinated, Vietnam War, Kent State shootings. This is the context in which Sesame Street is launched. And yet these people were saying, but hey, if we start with young kids, we, we can rebuild society, you know, uh, uh, the future stands a chance. And so the titles also kind of hint, hint to the reader, like maybe this can be a model for a way forward. Maybe this is kind of a roadmap. As you said, why can't teachers and educators study the way it was done and see if we can do it again? Mm. So David, I wanna thank you. Um, you know, it's hard to find good, inspiring news in the environment that um, we're all living in, but uh, your book, Sunny Days, the children's television revolution that changed America, not only tells a good story, it reminds us that people can come together and m make a huge difference. And it was inspiring to think about the kind of commitment and luck and, and perseverance that they had. So I want to thank you for a good book and some good news. Well, it was my pleasure on all counts. And this was fun too, just to see you again and be with all of the RJ Julia people out there. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening. <laughs>